Good morning, Maranatha. It's great to see so many of you. And, uh, oh, there's an echo. There we are. That's a little bit better. Great to see so many of you. And we're, uh, Jill and I are certainly excited to be here and excited that this is the opportunity I have to preach for the second time, but the first time as, as uh, a member of the leadership team and as lead pastor. So it's, it's a great privilege to do that. I want to read to you our text this morning is from Matthew 14, and it is likely a familiar story if you are a reader of the gospel, a reader of the Bible. Um, it's one that is talked about often. This is where Jesus walks on the water. The events of Matthew 14 unfold uh, pretty dramatically. It opens with uh, the death of John the Baptist. Then Jesus feeds the 5,000, and then we're told, beginning in verse 22 of Matthew 14, immediately he, meaning Jesus, made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat, by this time, was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. And so Peter got out of the boat, walked on the water, and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Please join me in prayer. Oh, Heavenly Father, we are thankful that you indeed are the Ancient of Days, that you are our refuge and strength and ever-present help in time of trouble. We thank you, Lord, that we have been able to lean on you throughout 2020 and can continue to lean on you in 2021. Lord, the last year brought many changes, and with uh, among those changes, a new administration, and so we pray for President Biden, for Vice President Harris, and their administration, Lord God, that they would follow the biblical command to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly before the Lord our God. We pray, Lord God, for all those who serve in government, particularly, Lord, as they deal with the continuing effects of the pandemic. For those affected, Lord God, uh, through unemployment, loss of business, the death of loved ones, and illness themselves, we would ask, O oh Lord God, that you would continue to provide and to uphold them. In our own family, Lord, we pray for your comforting presence to be with Leslie Enriquez and her family in the passing of her grandfather. We rejoice, O oh Lord God, that uh, Colleen's family is largely recovered from COVID. We pray also, Lord, with thanksgiving that Joanne Diegas' family is also on the mend. And we are grateful, Lord God, to hear the news of Kevin Kong's mother, Jenny, that she has had back-to-back -back good days, and that while she is still hospitalized, she is making strides toward recovery. We pray as well, Lord God, for Kevin Enyi, as they carry the burden of caring for their parents, and we ask that you would give them grace and support. We would ask these things, Lord God, because you are a God who indeed invites us to pray and lean and cast our burdens upon you. And so it is now, Lord God, that we cast our soul in your direction, our eyes heavenward, and our minds, O oh Lord, fixed on your word, that you would speak to us by your spirit, and in so doing, Lord, here and then, with your help, apply what we have learned from this text. All this we ask and pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. As I said, Matthew 14 begins with 
the death of John the baptizing prophet. Uh, and after Jesus received the news of the death of his cousin, Matthew tells us that Jesus went away by himself. He got into a boat, uh, likely to, to pray, to grieve, to rest. But while he is doing that, as he lands on the opposite shore, lo and behold, there are crowds of people waiting for him. And despite the imposition upon his desire to grieve and to pray and to rest, Mark, uh, Matthew tells us that Jesus had compassion on the crowds and even healed some of them. And as he continued to minister to the crowds and the day began to wear on, we're also told that the apostles themselves, the disciples, began to get a little impatient, realizing that the day was getting on toward evening and that they themselves did not have enough food to feed such a large crowd. They really implored Jesus to send the crowds away into the nearby villages so they could find something to eat. And we know from the story that Jesus had other plans, and he tells them, you give them something to eat. And from there follows the feeding of the 5,000 with five loaves and two fish. And that's where Matthew begins to pick up the pace of the story. Through the use of the word immediately, the pace of what happens next accelerates. And so we read that in verse 22, immediately after Jesus had fed the 5,000 and they picked up all the pieces, he made the disciples get into the boat to go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And then after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. We read that story and it, it sort of flows naturally in the way a story does. But there are things happening in this story that need to be explained a little further, need to be understood. Jesus did more than just make the apostles get in the boat, did a lot more than simply help them into the boat. That word made implies that he compelled them by force. He urged them to get into the boat while he scattered the crowds and sent them home. Now, now why would Jesus do that? Why force the disciples to get into the boat, to go before him to the other side, while he dismisses the crowds? Why do that? Why send the crowds away? He's just fed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. He literally has the crowd eating out of his hand. So now would be the perfect time to start the insurrection. Now would be the perfect time to throw off the yoke of Roman oppression. Now would be the time for Jesus to lay aside the tools of a carpenter and take up the sword of the king, the Messiah, and restore the kingdom to Israel. All Jesus has to do is follow the will of the crowd. Lead them into battle and claim the crown. But he didn't. He sends the disciples, he sends the crowd away. Why? I think Jesus sent everyone away because he came to do the Father's will, not the will of the people. There's a rule of thumb anytime you study the Bible, and it's this. Scripture interprets Scripture. And so in this case, we need to go to another gospel to sort of get the further, the, the broader context, to widen our gaze as to what's happening here. In John's gospel, particularly in the sixth chapter, the proof's particularly helpful in understanding what's going on here. We read in John 6, Jesus has fed the 5,000, and after he's fed the 5,000, the crowds begin to rave about Jesus as the prophet who is to come into the world. But... John says, Jesus perceiving that the crowds were about to come and take him by force and make him king, withdrew to the mountain by himself to pray. So there it is. There's the reason. The crowds wanted to make Jesus king by force. They clamored for an insurrection. And maybe the disciples did too. I mean, they're only human. It's easy to get swept up, isn't it, with the mob. But Jesus did not come to lead an insurrection. 
He did not come to be crowned king by the will of the crowds. Because I think Jesus knows no good will come from following the will of the crowd. Especially a crowd that wants to take him by force and make him king. The crowds wanted Jesus to be crowned without the cross. Jesus would have none of it. I mean, I think the events of this past summer and certainly of January 6th are proof of what happens when the crowd drives the agenda. Jesus came to do the will of his Father, not to do the will of the people. He knows the plans that God has for him. He knows also that God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts, they're not our thoughts. Jesus did not come to be crowned king by exploiting the expectations or stoking the passions of the crowds. He came to be crowned king through his crucifixion, where, as the scripture says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, as well as rejecting the cries of the crowd to be crowned king without the cross. He will always, Jesus will, he will always confound the crowds by refusing to conform to their expectations, our expectations of what he should do and who he should be. He stands always and forever apart from our expectations of what he should do and how he should behave. Because he came to do the Father's will, not our will. He came to do the will of the one who sent him, not we who would like him to conform to our image and our likeness. He does what he does, does Jesus, so that we will worship him for who he is, not for what we want him to be. It's interesting to see here that Jesus does not draw his identity from the will of the people. There are a lot of public figures who draw their identity from the people that they lead. And they conform to that persona. Jesus has no persona. He is the genuine article. His identity is grounded in the fact that his, his essential character is that of the eternal Son of God, sent by the Father into a world to save us from our sins. And so Jesus does here what he always does, which is the unexpected. He resists the temptation to bypass the cross in order to claim the crown. He forces the disciples to get into a boat. He sends the crowds away home. And when he finishes, he goes up to the mountainside by himself and he prays. What do you suppose Jesus prayed about? A couple of things come to mind, I think. I think first, he, it's likely that he prayed uh, to his father, thanking him for helping him resist the temptation to be, to be crowned king by force. Remember, that was one of the temptations that Satan lays before him. If you worship me, I'll give you all of the kingdoms of the earth. So that temptation is presented to Jesus by the crowds, and he resists it. And so he thanks his father for helping him resist that temptation as well as honoring the will of his Father. I think it's likely he prayed for the people that he healed, as well as for the people that he fed. And it's almost certain that he prayed for the disciples. He knew what he was about to do. He knew how they would react. He knew also how important it was for them to know his true identity, and that he came to do the will of his Father, not the will of the people. But here's the thing. We read on in the story and we see that sometimes Jesus does the Father's will by coming to us when and where we least expect him. By the time Jesus walked out to the disciples, Matthew tells us they were in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, which was substantially wide. It's not this little puddle, it's not this little pond that they're trying to row across. So their boat is being pummeled by the waves, and we're told on top of that, the wind is against them. So they likely have struck the sails, or the sail on their little fishing boat, and they're beginning to row, and have been rowing toward the opposite shore 
for several hours. In fact, in Mark's gospel, we're told that they were straining at the oars, which tells us they were working hard to get that little boat and themselves to the other side whilst being pummeled by the waves and the wind being against them. I've never, I'm not a sailor, I've never been on a rowboat, but I'm trying to imagine rowing a boat of some considerable size at night, in the dark, the wind is against me, and I can't see where I'm going. This is not a recipe for a good end. There's where I was, that's where I want to go to, and this is how I'm getting there. While the wind is against me, pushing me back the other way, and the waves are crashing against me. That's the sea. And so even though these are experienced fishermen who spent hours on this sea, this is a threatening moment for them. Any dreams of revolution that the disciples may have had are by now rowed out of them. Thoughts of insurrection will not save you when you're rowing to save your life and you can't see where you're going and don't really know where you are. They are wrung out, they are weak and wounded, sick and sore, and then Jesus shows up. And that's how it is sometimes, isn't it? He waits. Matthew tells us, when evening had come, he was there alone, but the boat by this time was a long way from land. Jesus waits until we're exhausted. He waits until we've exhausted every option, that we have followed every lead that leads to nowhere. He waits until we have run out of strength, run out of self-confidence, and even the will to go on. He waits until we have come to the very end, a very ounce of self-reliance, until we are wrung out, weak, and wounded, sick, and sore. I remember when we lived in Canada, we were going through a particularly stressful time, and it was just one of those seasons where every decision, you ever been here? It probably, this has probably never happened to you. Every decision you made turned out to be a bad decision. I mean, you assessed all of the facts, and you made the decision, and then the car breaks down, or the deal falls through. That was one of those seasons, and I remember going on these long 45-minute to an hour walkabouts where I would just do nothing except rant and rave against God. And I would tell him all of the reasons why he should not have done what he did and why he should treat me better than he was treating me. And at the end of the hour, after several times of doing this, I began to realize that at the end of that hour or so, I was right back where I was the hour before the hour started. And God waited for me to run out of all of my excuses, get all of that venom out of me. And it was as if the Holy Spirit would say, you done? Yeah. Okay, now we can get down to business. Now we can talk. And Jesus waits for us to get to that moment when everything that we are trying to do in our own strength is just rode out of us and our soul aches and our heart is, is panting for some kind of relief and our mind is on fire because we just can't come up with the right idea. And so Jesus comes. After having forced the disciples to get into the boat, to go before him on the other side, the thing to realize is just because Jesus did that, just because Jesus sent them out doesn't mean that the disciples, doesn't mean that we are going to be free from adversity or affliction or stress or illness. That they still experience, and so do we, a physically demanding, fear-inducing, faith-building, soul-stretching, heart-strengthening moment of affliction. This is why Jesus prayed for them. He knows he knows that by doing his will will often mean facing hardship, affliction, 
and even seasons of being perplexed by his silence. Jesus does not promise us an easy life, but he does promise us a life in which he prays for us as we follow his commands so that we too may do the Father's will. Now, because this is a human experience that we're discussing here, do you you suppose at all that the disciples grumbled a little bit while they were rowing for their lives? Do you think they may have, I don't know, let out a few choice words directed at God, maybe even at Jesus? Like, where is he? Why isn't he here? Why did he send us on this fool's errand? Doesn't he care about us? Doesn't he know how hard it is where we are right now? And yet unknown to them, and yet known to us because we have evidence in the scriptures to assure us of this, he has prayed for them for this very moment. In fact, he prays for everyone who trusts in him. For everyone whom he sends out in his name to do the Father's will in the power of his spirit. One of my favorite Bible uh, texts, and I sent it out in an an email earlier earlier this month, is Hebrews 7.25, where it says that Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. That is good news, that Jesus always lives to pray for his own. Here's even more good news. The Bible tells us that Jesus is the good shepherd, and a good shepherd knows his sheep, and he knows his sheep by name. So that when Jesus prays for you and for me, it's not just generic, vanilla-flavored prayer, like, oh Lord, your will be done. But he prays for us by name for the specific need that we have in the specific situation and circumstance in which we find ourselves. When Jesus sends us out then, and he sends us out into hard places, and he sends us out in hard circumstances to do hard things in his name, in the power of his spirit, remember this, that we are sent out, upheld by the prayer of a risen Savior, of a good shepherd who knows us by name, who loved us so much to die for us and still now intercedes for us and will keep on praying for us, even on into eternity, that we might do the Father's will in his name and in the power of his spirit. And so here are the disciples. They're in a storm. They're in the dark. They're in the middle of the sea. They're exhausted. They're afraid. They're weak. They're anxious. And remember, their back is to the shore. They're rowing away from everything that was safe and secure and comfortable, and they're rowing toward they don't know what. And they're expecting to see Jesus on the other shore. Because it's dark, they really don't know where they are. The pounding of the waves and the Beating of the wind against them has left them beaten, battered, and bewildered. They are in survival mode. I remember years ago when when Jill and I were dating and she was living in Brooklyn and I was living on Long Island with my parents. I I uh, I was working at a church in Brooklyn as a janitor and after work I would go to her apartment, we'd have dinner and then I'd head home to my parents on Long Island. It was like a 45 minute drive and there were some nights where <clears throat> I used to leave around 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night, and there were some nights where I remembered getting on the Belt Parkway, and then the next thing I knew, I was at exit 30 on the Southern State. I don't know how I got there. I was in survival mode. It was like my, my brain went on automatic pilot. And I think that's sometimes what happens with us when we follow Christ in the midst of a storm. We just go through the motions. We just know that we woke up at a certain time and now we're going to bed. And what happened in between, we have no idea. We just know that somehow life took place. That's where the disciples are. They figure if they could just keep rowing, just keep 
pounding at it. Just keep working at it. They keep rowing. Maybe, just maybe, they'll get to the other side. And if they pray at all, their prayer is most likely a simple, Oh God, please help me make it to the other side in one piece and alive. And then Jesus shows up. But instead of welcoming his arrival, they believe him to be a ghost. That may strike us as odd. These Jewish men brought up to revere and to worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Moses and Joshua, the God of David. But to most Jews, even those who were raised as God-fearing Jews, the sea represented a place of danger and evil. It was the residence of evil spirits. And so, again, giving the disciples a bit of grace here, it's night. They can't see where they're going. They don't know where they are. They expect to see Jesus on the other shore. And yet here he is, or this figure sort of coming out of the darkness, walking toward them. What would you do? Probably cry out as they did. It's a ghost. And they shriek out in fear. But it wasn't a ghost, was it? It was Jesus. Sometimes he comes to us when and where we least expect him. Knowing their fear, immediately, Mark of Matthew tells us, immediately Jesus says three things. Take heart or have courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. I have no way to prove this, but I have, a, I have the sense that when Jesus said these things, there was a smile in his voice. It wasn't the sonorous Charlton Heston, you know, Moses. It, was like, it wasn't like, have courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. It was like, have courage. It's I. Don't be afraid. Sometimes God bellows. Sometimes God thunders. Psalm 29 talks about the power and the majesty of God's voice to break cedars and to shake the foundations of the earth. That kind of voice is not needed when you're rowing for your life in the middle of a storm. What we need to hear is the jovial cheerfulness of our good Savior coming out to rescue us in the midst of our circumstances. And that's exactly what Jesus does here. When he says, have courage, it's I. Don't be afraid. And those three statements are designed in their aim to give encouragement, to provide assurance, and to deliver peace to these men. Because sometimes instead of speaking to the storm, which is likely what the apostles wanted him to do, and what we want him to do, rather than speaking to the storm, Jesus speaks to our hearts. Rather than calming the storm, Jesus leads us through it with words of encouragement, assurance, and peace. He speaks to us and he says, have courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Have courage and don't be afraid. Those are two commands that are like bookends that really are meant to highlight what Jesus says in the middle. Have courage. Why? It is I. Don't be afraid. Why? It is I. Literally, I am. Now, if you know your Bible, particularly your Old Testament, particularly your Old Testament stories, the Rolodex or the hard drive is flicking back to Exodus 3.14 where Moses sees this curious thing of a bush that is on fire but is not consumed. He goes to see this amazing thing. And from the bush, he hears a voice. Moses, take the sandals from off your feet, for the place where you're standing is holy ground. And the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the great I Am, speaks to him and commissions him to go to Egypt. And when Moses says, you know, they're not going to believe 
me when I tell them, who shall I say sent me? And God says, I am. Tell them, I am sent you. And here is Jesus using that same language. So when he says, it is I, he is declaring to himself to be, I am the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, the Word of God in human flesh, one with the Father and the Holy Spirit, sent to rescue desperate men who cannot save themselves. When you look at Matthew 14, what we see here is a picture of the gospel. It's played out in the middle of the sea, in the middle of a storm, in the middle of a night. Where desperate men are lost and unable to save themselves. That's the gospel. Where God and the person of Jesus Christ comes to us when and where we least expect him to rescue us by entering into the chaos of our circumstances from which we cannot deliver ourselves so that he can deliver us through them into a place of safety, security, peace, salvation, and forgiveness so that we are then empowered to do what Christ says according to the Father's will in the power of the Spirit. That's the gospel. It tells us that the, the, the Jesus, that I am who made the wind and the waves, has authority over them. That's why he's walking on the sea. There's no wind sort of whipping his hair. He's not sort of, it's like, hold on, fellas, I'll be right there. Ah, he's walking as you would on the street with confidence and certainty. That's why he says, have courage. The gospel is that Jesus has ordained the circumstances into which he sends us for our good and for his glory. It's why he says, don't be afraid. There's a reason for this. There's a purpose for this. There's a design in this. The gospel tells us that when Jesus comes, when and where we least expect him, it is to give us words of assurance. That's why he says, I am. I am with you. I am here. I have sent you. I am. You are not alone. You are not alone. The gospel tells us that Jesus comes to us where we are in order to reveal his power and his story over the chaos into which we at times find ourselves. The gospel tells us that sometimes Jesus comes to us at an unexpected time, in an unexpected way, to give us an unexpected courage to face unexpected circumstances. I'll say that again because there are a lot of unexpecteds there. He comes to us at an unexpected time in an unexpected way in order to give us an unexpected courage to face unexpected circumstances. The gospel tells us that wherever Jesus is present, fear is absent. You see, by compelling the disciples to get into the boat, Jesus purposely separated them from everything that gave them security and comfort and confidence. By the time he walked out to them on the water, they were feeling incredibly insecure, very, very uncomfortable, and were not at all confident. They were also scared. But remember, where Jesus is present, fear is absent. And tests of faith, such as the disciples are going through, such as you may be going through at this moment, tests of faith are God-ordained moments designed to help us see him more clearly and so that we can know him better, so that we can trust him with an ever-increasing confidence. And we find our security and our comfort in him. I like the way that John Piper says it, that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Sometimes the only way that we can learn to be satisfied in Christ is for him to lead us through the storm. With those words, have courage, it is I, do not be afraid. And Because Jesus does the Father's will, he inspires a bold faith. We know what happens next, right? So here, Jesus comes out to the disciples. Where, faith, where Jesus is, faith is present. 
as well as fear being absent. So Peter, seeing and absolutely certain that it's Jesus standing before him, and we know that because that word, when he says, Lord, if it's you, command me to come, that word if, more often than not, when you see that word in the New Testament, particularly in Paul's letters, when you see that word if, it can also be translated since. This is a statement of faith. This is a statement of fact. Lord, since it's you, command me to come out to you on the water. And Jesus, in response to Peter's boldness of faith, immediately says, come on! And out of the boat he steps. And out of the boat he begins to walk toward Jesus. We don't know how far he gets. Everything goes well until Peter begins to notice, I'm walking on water. And he saw the wind. And the more he saw the wind, the more his eyes fixed on the wind, the less his eyes were fixed on Christ. And the more Peter focused on his circumstances, the more he became afraid. And the more he became afraid, the more faith gave way to fear. And so beginning to sink, he cries out, Lord, save me! And Jesus, because he listens to the desperate cries of a desperate heart, Matthew says, immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and took hold of him. And he raised Peter up. So you got to picture this scene. Peter's walking on the water. He gets to look at the wind, sees it, and he sinks. And then Jesus lifts him up. And the two of them are standing on the water. Above it, actually. Unaffected by the waves, unaffected by the wind. Yet Peter is safe. He is secure. And he is comforted. And then Jesus says, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Notice he doesn't ask Peter why you had no faith, Peter. But why you had little faith. You can make that one word. Little faith. People with little faith are easily distracted by contrary circumstances. Remember when Jesus tells the parable of the, of the, seed, the, parable of the sower, and he talks about seed that falls into a certain type of soil, and it begins to grow, but the thorns and thistles, the cares and worries of this life begin to choke it out? That's Peter in this story. He is doing well, but then the surrounding circumstances challenge his understanding of reality because we all know human beings do not walk on water. It's like in the, uh, in the film version, the Chronicles of Narnia, when the children are in Narnia for the first time and they meet a talking beaver. And Peter says, well, we should listen to this. And Susan says, don't you understand? Beavers aren't supposed to talk. That's not natural. And so it's, it would normal for Peter to think, wait a minute now. So it's not that he had no faith, he had little faith. And it's interesting too that in the Gospels, the only people to whom Jesus refers to as having little faith are the disciples. And he also doesn't ask Peter, why did you doubt? Anybody can see that. We're not made to walk on water. But remember, the same faith that prompted Peter to step out of the boat is the same faith that prompted him to ask Jesus to save him. And you don't ask a ghost to save you. You ask a Savior to save you. And that's who Jesus is. Also bear in mind that Peter doesn't ask Jesus, promise me I won't sink. He says, if it's, if it, since it's you, command me to come. He doesn't... He doesn't play games like Gideon with the fleece. Well, if you want me to attack, make it this way. If you want me to do he says, if it's you, since it's you, command me and I'll come. Now, some, pe some people believe that Peter was wrong to ask Jesus to command him to walk on the water. But if he was, then Jesus would never have allowed him to step out of the boat. Peter's failure is not due to a false bravado. It's just a failure to trust and keep his eyes fixed on Christ. 
It's as if Jesus is saying, why did you doubt when you had already come so far? I mean, if Jesus is able to extend his hand and save Peter immediately, you got to figure, however distant the boat was from where Jesus was, Peter had gotten pretty far. Certainly far enough where Jesus could reach him out, uh, reach out his hand and grab hold of him. Now, Peter's failure illustrates an important point about God's sovereignty and our responsibility when it comes to trusting Jesus and doing what he says. We can only do what Jesus says the more that we keep our eyes fixed on him. And the only way that disciples with little faith grow into disciples with much faith is to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, keep trusting him, even when at times our faith will fail. Knowing and trusting that even when our faith fails, God's grace prevails. He knows He knows that people with little faith need time to grow and mature. I think you can compare growing in faith to like growing through adolescence. We've all been there. Some of you are parents of adolescence. So you know that awkward time. You're old enough to want to be on your own, but you don't have the means to be on your own. And so there's this constant push and pull. And God knows that. And sometimes growing in faith is like taking two steps forward and three steps backward. Bear in mind, too, that no one, no one follows Jesus perfectly. A friend once told me that when it comes to following Jesus, it's not the distance you've traveled, but the direction you're going in that matters. So keep walking toward Jesus. Wind is high. The waves are battering against you, but keep your eyes fixed on Christ. Keep walking toward him. And remember that in those moments when your faith fails, God's grace prevails. Little faith becomes much faith by resolving to keep walking toward Jesus and trusting him to catch us when we fall, as well as to encourage us when we do his will. Everything he does, everything he does, He does so that we will worship him as the one and only Son of God. And as I said before, sometimes instead of quieting the storm, Jesus leads us through it. It's like the old line from the old hymn that John quoted at the opening of service. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. And so after pulling Peter up out of the water. I find it interesting and comforting that what Jesus does is he goes back with Peter into the boat to rejoin the other apostles. It's tempting to, at that moment, think that it's going to be a sort of Jesus and me moment between Peter and Jesus, where arm in arm, they'll sort of walk together on the water Back to, you know, to the other shore, Jesus sort of conversing with Peter, telling him where he went wrong, but he doesn't do that. There's no need for a further miracle when the means of transportation is readily available in a boat. So he gets into the boat, they rejoin them, because even though it's good to make a bold step of faith, when you fail in taking that bold step, it is a wonderful thing to be able to be brought back into the fellowship of a community of believers who can encourage you, pray for you, support you, and uphold you. And besides, I didn't see anybody else out of that boat getting up to walk on the water either. It was just Peter. So there was no room at all for any of the other 11 to say, if that were me, you know, (laughs) I would have made it all the way. No, you wouldn't. And neither did Peter. And so it's worthwhile taking note that when Jesus and Peter get in the boat, the final miracle in this story takes place. Actually, there's one more miracle to take place. That's the, the confession they make. But the miracle next to happens is that everything calms. The wind ceases. When Jesus does the Father's will, the right response is to worship him. And that's exactly what the apostles do. Truly, they say, you are the Son of God. Now, They're not there yet, (laughs) 
right? And their confession is likely an emotional expression than it is any kind of maybe deep-seated faith, but you begin to see the, dawn, the light beginning to dawn in their souls. And two chapters later in Matthew 16, Peter makes the ultimate confession. You are the Christ, the Son of God. And so everything Jesus does, everything Jesus does, he does so that we will worship him as the one and only true God, the Son of God sent to save us from our sins. I'm going to ask Carson to put a quote on the, on the screen here to my right. This is from a commentary by Frederick Dale Brunner. Uh, he has a very insight on this text. He says, the center of the story is Jesus' imperial I am. The feeder of the hungry who fed the 5,000 is now identified as the divine Lord who walks on water. The social savior is also the sovereign I am. But in both stories, the church disappoints Jesus. In crises, she believes that her surroundings and resources, or lack of them, are more decisive than her Lord. She believes that the world's winds are stronger than the Lord's words. Yet in both stories, the Lord uses his faulty disciples to distribute food in one and to subdue nature in the other. Aren't these two stories, then, church history exactly? A sovereign Lord uses, enables, rebukes, and saves a volatile church. So because Jesus is the I Am, everything he does is done so that we will worship him as the one and only Son of God. Everything Jesus does is so that we will adore him as the authentic Son of God. Everything Jesus does is done so that we will glorify him as the genuine Son of God, the sovereign Lord, who uses, enables, rebukes, and saves a volatile church. And I'll just end with this. This text has a, 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 a special meaning for Jill and for me. Um, it goes back to our, our first days on the campus of Gordon-Conwell back in 1981. In September of 1981, uh, I had uh, enrolled as a student there. And Jill and I had moved to South Hamilton, Massachusetts, so I could attend seminary. Um, <clears throat> we were two months married, so we got married in July, and so here in September we moved to a new state, uh, no money, or very little money, no job, no place to live, we were just living by faith, and the Lord provided, um, in a matter of days, a job for Jill and a place for us to stay in Essex, Massachusetts, and the, <clears throat> the Sunday before classes were to start, the seminary uh, had a barbecue, a welcome barbecue for all new students. You get to meet faculty and all of this. And so uh, after everyone had eaten their, our fill of hot dogs and hamburgers and potato salad and got to meet the new president, Dr. Cooley, who had just arrived, uh, the dean of students, um, uh, the, the, bearing the same name, Dean, dean Peterson, um, who, as I remember, had just come back from a stint as a Naval Reserve chaplain. So there he is wearing his Navy whites, Using uh, preaching from this text, a, a message of encouragement. Uh, as he launched into the, his message on Matthew 14, Peterson told us that like Peter, all of us, students and student wives and st students' families alike, all of us had come to seminary in obedience to Jesus' command to step out of the boat. But he cautioned us. He said, stepping out of that boat is dangerous. With the wind and the waves of seminary life, learning Greek and Hebrew and writing exegesis papers, paying tuition, exams, the stresses of life would soon be swirling around us. And it's during these stormy times, he said that we would be tempted to fear and we would be tempted to doubt whether we had made the right decision or whether we would make it at all, all the way to graduation. But he assured us he will, that we would. Remember this, he told us. He says, it's not the greatness of your faith, but the greatness of the one in whom you have placed your faith that is important. So even when following Jesus doesn't make sense, he told us, he knows the plans he has for you. He called you, and you obeyed. 
So keep your head up. Keep your eyes fixed on him and keep walking toward him. A few months later, in January of 82, I totaled the only car that we had. <laughs> uh, but dear friends came to our aid and uh, helped us purchase a, a used vehicle. But I remember that Dean Peterson's chapel message suddenly took on flesh and blood. And yet the Lord there even provided. And it wasn't the only time he's provided for us. And he continues to provide. And I cannot tell you how often Jill and I have returned again and again to that chapel message, which I'm sure Dean Peterson has probably filed away. In fact, he did because I saw him a few years ago and I told him about that and he had no memory of that message at all. That's how it is sometimes when you preach. But that word, keep your head up, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus and keep walking toward him, that has become the cornerstone of our life and ministry. And I think that is a good cornerstone on which to build the ministry of a church. Because anytime you begin a new venture, anytime you start a new challenge, it's stepping out of the boat. But remember, you're walking toward the one who is the Son of God, who has ordained the very circumstances into which he has summoned you, so that he is not only going to meet you on the other side, of your circumstances, but he is going to be with you right in the midst of them to help you get to the other side. Everything Jesus does, he does so that we will worship him as a genuine son of God, the sovereign Lord who uses, enables, rebukes, and saves a volatile church. You think about that. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, like the Apostle Peter, we want to do the right thing. We want to be bold and courageous. We want to be strong and faithful. We want to walk on the water toward you. And yet, Lord, in our more honest moments, we recognize that sometimes we're more talk and substance. And so remind us, O oh Lord God, that our faith is not in faith, that our faith is not in our strength or our courage, but our faith is in the one who walks on the water and who commands us to walk out to him. Remembering that in every command there is Jesus' promise to give us this power and this strength to do what he commands. This we ask and pray in his strong and powerful name. Amen.